1: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our listener's digest of the week's stories, brought to you every Monday. I'm Robert Guest, The Economist's foreign editor, and on your menu today how NASA prepared to explore a place 300 times hotter than the surface of the sun, France's love affair with the high speed train, and should the veil be a matter for the courts or your conscience? First, our cover story, which this week dealt with the inevitable, taxes. Perhaps you think your taxes are too high, or that much of what you do pay is frittered away by wasteful governments. We looked at a different problem, not how much you pay or how it's spent, but how it's raised. Today's tax systems need to be brought into the 21st century. Jean-Baptiste Colbert The finance minister of Louis XIV of
2: France famously compared the art of raising tax to plucking the goose so as to obtain the largest possible amount of feathers with the smallest possible amount of hissing.
1: Yet in most countries, the art of plucking has failed. The ways wealth accumulates are changing, so governments are missing opportunities for fair taxes. All countries should tax both property and inheritance more. These taxes are unpopular
2: but mostly efficient. To stop companies shifting profits, governments should switch their focus from firms to investors. Profits ultimately flow to shareholders as dividends and buybacks, but few people are likely to emigrate to avoid taxes on their investment income. Apple can move its intellectual property to Ireland, but it cannot put its shareholders there. Fundamental tax reform can boost growth and make societies more equal. As the labour market continues to polarise between high earners and everyone else, Income taxes should be low or negative for the lowest earners. The difficulty is getting policymakers to knuckle down to this unglamorous task. Politicians rarely consider the purpose and scope of taxation. When they do change tax codes, they clumsily bolt on new levies and snap off old ones, all in a rush for good headlines. Rewriting the codes means winning over sceptical voters and defying rapacious special interests. It is hard work.
1: But the prize is well worth the fight. To find out more about how to make taxes work for both taxpayers and governments, read the briefing in this week's issue of The Economist. And if you haven't already, subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Over to our Asia section now, where an article considered the fine art of public relations – All politicians need to polish up their public image, but few national leaders go to such extraordinary lengths as Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India. He is said to change clothes as often as four times a day, keeping harmony
2: with the occasion. The Prime Minister has more than 40 million followers on both Facebook and Twitter. Among other things, internet followers have been sent links to animated videos featuring Mr Modi as a yoga instructor. He also promotes the videos on his monthly radio show, broadcast in 18 languages by All India Radio.
1: All this image-making is carefully choreographed.
2: The Prime Minister makes few unscripted appearances. In a break with tradition, he has never held a press conference. At a recent rare interaction with news editors, the dozen visitors were told the meeting was wholly off the record.
1: And they were to avoid the topic of politics – Strictly small talk, then. But image is important. From politics to business, public opinion can make or break. A piece in this week's business section heard from Emmanuel Faber, who runs Danone, a big French company known for their fizzy water and yoghurt.
3: A revolution and the end of globalisation are nigh. People are walking out of brands that they've been consuming for decades, he says. Millennials in particular do not think their food system works. And are shopping locally – favouring smaller producers and buying organic, plant-based or GM-free products.
1: Danone's answer is completely to rethink the reason for its existence.
3: The purpose of this firm is not to create shareholder value, he says. Instead, it is to get healthy food to as many mouths as possible. It wants
1: to be part of a select group of businesses certified as B-corporations.
3: A label meant to reflect a firm's ethical, social, environmental practices – Smaller outfits, such as Patagonia, a clothing firm, or Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, now part of Unilever, were early B Corps. Some 2,500 have been certified in the past decade or so. Does Danone's radical approach hold water? The proof of the pudding will be in the eating.
1: Over in our Europe section, a correspondent sent a dispatch from the great Parisian exodus.
2: August in France, when Paris empties out, brings an annual ritual to the country's mainline railway stations. Out go the besuited early-morning travellers settling into high-speed TGV trains for business meetings in Bordeaux or Lyon. In come extended families, fishing rods, skateboards, tennis rackets, pushchairs and cats in carry-on baskets.
1: For the French, railways evoke romance, progress and adventure. Claude
2: Monet painted 12 oils of the Gare saint Lazare in 1877, the billowing dark steam from the engines rising towards the light clouds outside. Fear the day that a train no longer stirs you, wrote Guillaume Apollinaire in his war poem Victory. Inaugurated in 1981, the TGV is regarded as an emblem of national technical prowess. It revived rail travel and shrank the country's mental map. But it also cost an awful lot. It's plunged the SNCF into debt, which the government is now taking onto its books as part of its railway reform. Planned competition may change the nature and branding of the trains on French tracks, but the summer rituals
1: will doubtless remain. For children in most of the world, summer means freedom from school for the longest holiday of the year. But studies show that children forget an awful lot of what they learnt the previous year during the summer holidays. And this is a problem that affects poor children much more than rich ones. So, should summer holidays be cancelled? Aman Rizvi discussed the idea with us.
2: Wealthier families are already using the summer holidays to try and get a leg up over their peers. Many well-off parents will send their kids to tech camp or robotics camp or neuroscience camp. But experts say that this should be more available to children from all backgrounds. So we don't have a situation where a rich child's summer looks very different from a poor child's summer. What that sort of entails is... More learning, but not necessarily more school. So children can use the summer to pick up different kinds of skills, social and emotional learning, for instance, or to pursue a very sort of niche passion that they have.
1: But what about less well-off families? To find out, tune in to The Week Ahead by Economist Radio on your podcast app. It's published every Friday. During this record-breaking hot spell, the sun has become a very familiar presence. But there's a lot we still don't know about our nearest star, For example, why is the sun's corona – that's the glowing ring of plasma visible during a total eclipse – 300 times hotter than the surface of the sun itself? NASA's Parker Solar Probe, which launched on Saturday, will venture into the corona to find out. But how can it survive intact at that temperature? We asked Dr Nicola Fox, project scientist, for the mission.
3: Parker Solar Probe has a heat shield that flies in front of the spacecraft, so it's held on by a titanium structure – and the spacecraft body actually sits in this shadow caused by the heat shield. Most of the instruments sit on the main body of the spacecraft, and so the front side of the heat shield gets to about 1400 degrees Celsius, but the main body of the spacecraft, that is only at about 30 degrees centigrade. So that's a pretty typical operating temperature for most of these instruments.
1: And as protests continue in Iran, our guest on The Economist Asks was the Iranian journalist and activist Masih Alinejad. Iran is the only country in the world where all women are required by law to cover their hair in public. We asked her why the Iranian government feels the need to use force to enforce a dress code.
3: For Islamic Republic of Iran, hijab is the main pillar of the the, the regime. Actually, we have three pillars, hijab, death to America, death to Israel. So for them, this is actually important to show the rest of the world that this is islamic country this is the way that they try to control women and control the whole society through women that is why they never actually allow women to express themselves and talk about it in the media inside iran which is the red line which is a taboo in iran but after you know the the campaign and girls of revolution street who put the headscarf on a stick the women inside iran they broke the censorship
1: And finally, this week's obituary paid tribute to a fearless campaigner for democracy in Congo. Luke Nkulula, a founder of the non-violent lucha movement, died on June the
0: 10th, aged just 32. The fire took hold at around midnight. It was so fierce and sudden in the wooden house in Himbe, outside Goma, in eastern Congo, that Luke Nkulula could not get through the lounge to the main door. After an hour, firemen came. By then, the house was ashes. Investigations by a state procurator blamed an overheated battery, but Mr Nkalula's friends were sure he had been killed by the government in Kinshasa. He didn't look like a revolutionary. He was a law graduate and a legal consultant for non-profits. Although the Congo he grew up in was a desperate place, racked by a civil war in which millions had died and despots had dug themselves in, he kept Lucia both idealistic and legalistic. His first modest campaign was to get more jobs and clean drinking water for Goma. For this and the vitality he poured into the movement, he earned the nickname H2O.
1: His hero was Patrice Lumumba, the first prime minister of independent Congo, who was quickly deposed and murdered and has since become something of a secular saint for Congolese democracy
0: activists. He took Lumumba's finest words as his own motto, instinctively clenching his fist as he declared them. Le Congo est grande, et il demande de nous la grandeur. He dreamed fiercely and was buried among those dreams. That's the end of this week's
1: Tasting Menu, but as ever, you can find out more on all these and other stories at economist.com, or from Economist Radio on your podcast app. And if you like what we do, or you have suggestions for how we could do it even better, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Robert Guest. In London, this is The Economist.
2: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.